This is a place called Bastrop, a podcast focused on the people in a small town in Central Texas, a place both unique and characteristic of the state's history, with a cultural integrity that unfolds with each passing year. This is a place called Bastrop. Hi, I'm Ken Kessler here with Lucian Perkins. And we're at the Bastrop Visitor Center and Museum in downtown Bastrop on Main Street with Robbie Sanders, who happens to be the world's leading expert on old Bastrop homes. So we're gonna go get in her car and we're gonna do a driving tour and she will discuss the homes as we get there. As a matter of fact, we're gonna do it so that if you wanna follow this in your car, you can do it, or you can just listen to the wonderful stories that she will tell. Okay, right. Lucian uh, is uh, here with us too, as usual, and Robbie and I will be talking most of the time. Our chauffeur will be Lucian. So let's go out to the car and start our drive. All right. So Lucian, we're here at uh, the museum. We're gonna head north on Main Street. We're gonna go three blocks and we're gonna pass three stop signs. And that will get us going into the district where we want to view the houses. So, uh, Robbie, what got you started as the person who has studied more about these houses and knows more than anybody else? Do you remember you, you saying a long time ago, Kenneth, that you liked all the old stories because no one could contradict you. They were all gone. <laughs> everybody so, was everybody so was dead. dead. That's right. But and I do like the gossip. I like the gossip part in, the, in these old houses. But there was another reason uh, I got interested. When we were redoing our house down here on Maine, before we moved in, there was a little lady that would drive by and sit in the driveway and start to quiz me. And her name was Mary Jane Davis. And she wanted to drive me around town and tell me about these houses. So I agreed, and, and she was much older than I. And she had me write these little stories up, which I would. I would take them to her, and we'd sit at her kitchen table. And she had bony little fingers, and if she thought I had written it wrong, she would tap that table with her finger, and she'd say, no, 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 scared me to death. But I rewrote it and she really got me interested and she told me a lot of things about the houses. She was very precise in mm -hmm. what she wanted. Mm -hmm. Robbie, before we get up to the first place, can you tell me the name of your book that's coming out uh, and how people might be able to find it? It's a working title, but it appears that it's going to be Historic Homes of Bastrop, Texas. It's supposed to be out next spring, which will be, I hope, February, March, April uh, of 2022, and it's being uh, published by A&M Press. So Lucian, we've now come to the first left-hand turn, or about there, please take a left-hand turn. This is Buttonwood, and then stop immediately after you make the turn on the right, because the first house is right there. Take a good look at it as you turn. We're now in front of Robbie's house at 1402 Main Street. Okay, okay. this is my house. This is how I got interested in the first place. This home is the home of Moses and Eloise Diamond, and it's from about 1851, and it's a one-story folk house. Some of it is combination board and batten on one side and clapboard on the other, and it has 
shed roof and gables and deep porch and matching front doors. Diamond was a merchant on Main Street, and when two blocks of Main burned in 1862, his was one of the stores that burned. And he lost everything and evidently couldn't rebound from his loss. And he eventually moved to LaGrange and then sold this home to Caton and Harriet Earhart three years later. Caton Earhart and his younger brother and both parents came to Bastrop about 1839 or 40. And within a year, both parents died on the same night and left the boys orphans. And they were taken in by a local hotel owner. Caton was 18 years old when he went with the Bastrop men on what they called the ill-fated Texan Santa Fe expedition. Kenneth, you're the historian, but you recall that expedition was organized under Maribo Lamar. Is that how you say his name, Maribo? Best I can do was then president of the Republic of Texas at that time, and that was his attempt to establish trade between Texas and New Mexico. Well, on that expedition, there were 21 ox-drawn wagons, and Caton drove one for one of the local merchants in Bastrop, and his wagon was loaded with shoes from Bastrop, from some merchant here. And they say all the merchandise on those wagons, those 21 wagons, was worth about $200,000. And they had an escort of uh, 320 military men. Well, of course, when they got to New Mexico, they weren't welcome, and they were captured and were marched 2,000 miles from Santa Fe to Mexico City. And Caton wrote years later in his reminiscences, and I have to quote him, if, if you'll let me hear, and he said, that terrible desert without water, food, or firewood. It was indeed a journey of death. And then he wrote, there was much suffering and cruel hardships, but he was held in prison about a year. Then he went to San Marcos for a short time where he opened the very first drugstore in Texas. Then he moved to Bastrop back here after the fire bought this house and opened his drugstore on Main Street. Before he died, and he died in this house, in 1884, he wrote what he called his last wishes. <laughs> and I love them. They, they're just so dramatic. He said he wanted to be buried after sundown about dark by torchlight. And he wanted a band to accompany his body to the cemetery. And he wanted them to play solemn music. And there's a little cannon at the courthouse, and he wanted it hauled out and fired while he was on his way to the cemetery. And so that is Caton, and I can just imagine that nighttime parade with those torches and that music. It had to have been magnificent. But anyway, that's the story of Caton Earhart in this house. Thank you, Robbie. L Lucian, now we're going to go one block forward up to that stop sign, which will put us on Church Street, and Robbie will talk about the next house. Robbie, I'm really lucky to have been able to be, go inside your house, which is wonderful. <laughs> I would not invite anybody else to do well, that, it's but, it, but it's very, a friend. It's very it's, fancy. It's, but it's, you know, it's just an old farmhouse. It, that's, but that's what's great about it. So, Right here, Lucian, by this uh, granite marker here on the corner, that's the key to some of this history of this house. This is 1402 
Church Street, and it's called the H.P. Luckett House, and he married Fanny, and it is the most photographed house in Bastrop. Here on the corner of the property next to the street, there's this granite marker that you can see. It says the house is on the site of the Bastrop Military Institute. And that institute operated here from 1851 through the Civil War. The cadets came from all over the South. When the Civil War began, the cadets were in demand as drill masters. And at war's end, the Military Institute moved to Austin and the building was eventually purchased by the city for a school. Well, Luckett bought the old institute building. It was dilapidated by 1892, and he replaced it with this grand Queen Anne-styled house. And he used recycled lumber from the institute, and up in the attic are some of the boards from the institute, and those boards still have dates and uh, initials of some of the cadets carved in those boards. Of course, you can see it has an elegant steamboat style wraparound veranda on both the first and the second floor. It has uh, Oriole Bay windows, but inside in the foyer is a magnificent split stairway, and there are three coal-fired fireplaces. And Kenneth, I know you've been in there to see this, but it still has the original iridescent wallpaper and the original French carpet in the living room. Luckett was the city health officer and became known throughout the state as an authority on yellow fever. It spread easily and quickly within neighborhoods and communities within only a few weeks of seeing their first case. For example, during the epidemic of 1867 in nearby Chapel Hill, there were hardly enough well ones to bury the dead. LaGrange was a hotbed of the fever, and Bastrop saw its share of deaths. No one knew what caused the disease, but Texans were aware that yellow fever peaked in the summer and ended with the first frost. Epidemics struck every year, starting in the 1830s to the early 1900s. Citizens quarantined their cities, and they even stood guard with shotguns to prevent anyone carrying that disease to enter their town. Trains were stopped, and travelers were forced into detention camps, and ships were treated with chemicals. Finally, in 1900, it was confirmed by the U.S. Army that the mosquito was the cause. In 1905, then, Luckett went before the Bastrop City Council and declared a war on mosquitoes. And he pressed the council for strict enforcement of city sanitary ordinances, and that meant getting rid of weeds and the closing of the public watering troughs. And I guess that's where they watered the horses, but he wanted all the watering troughs closed to protect the town from yellow fever. He was a director of First National Bank and one of the vice presidents, but he also had the distinction of owning the first automobile in Bastrop County. That was about 1910. So that's H.P. Luckett and this beautiful, beautiful home. It is. Lucian, go up to the next stop sign and I think pull over to the right off the street and you'll be able to see it better once you make the turn. So we're going to stop right here. Mm -hmm and let 
Robbie talking about? This is uh, 1404 Wilson. We're on Wilson Street. I love the stories associated with this house. The house was bought in 1857 by a man named Colonel Robert Thomas Pritchard Allen. And he was hired to head up the Military Institute. Of course, we just passed the site, and so he lived here. And he operated a boarding house for the Institute. Plus, he was commandant, so he and his wife, Julia, lived here. One of the wonderful undertold stories about this house is when Alan arrived in Bastrop, he came before his family. He bought the house, he got all settled in, and then sent for Julia and their two sons, Robert Jr. and a 12-year-old son named John Howard. And they were back in Kentucky. But a portion of their trip to Bastrop required that they travel from New Orleans to Galveston on the steamship Opelousas, and that steamship collided with another ship called the General Chambers, and there were many lives lost in that shipwreck. And Julia was described as portly, and she and two boys were adrift for three hours, and they clung to the side of a lifeboat, and those boys supported her so that she could stay afloat. Needless to say, they were all rescued after three hours and they made it to Bastrop. The most important guest in this house was General Sam Houston, and his two sons were then cadets at the Military Institute. Well, when the Civil War broke out in 1861, the cadets were in demand and they all left the school. Allen then left to serve as a mustering officer at different Confederate camps in Texas and in 1863 he was in charge of Camp Ford and that was a prisoner of war camp near Tyler. Okay move up Lucian just a little bit there's another historical marker along here right in front of this house. Uh, hang on it's right here. It says Julia Dickinson Allen. That is a second historical marker in front of this house. It was erected in honor of Julia, Alan's wife, and it describes Julia as an angel of mercy to prisoners at Camp Ford. It says she nursed the ill, consoled the homesick, cheered the despondent, and attended church services with the prisoners. And it says she was so much esteemed and loved that one of the Federals wrote a poem in her honor. So I think that's a great tribute to Julia at that prisoner of war camp. Well, I've never seen that poem, so if anyone ever comes across that poem, would you please keep me in mind and make me a copy? <laughs> okay. So we're gonna uh, move on down this same street, Wilson Street. We're gonna pass three houses on the left, and we'll be coming up to a house that you will, you'll know you're there because it's a magnificent house on the left, and we'll have a glorious view as Robbie talks. Right here, yes, it's beautiful. This is the Crocheron House, magnificent. And it's, this is 1506 Wilson. Henry and Mary Crocheron started building this house and a hurricane came in and scattered all their construction lumber all over the lot. And lots in Bastrop at that time were like 12 acres in this part of town. So the lumber was all over. They picked it all up, started building again and finished construction in 1857. And this house is described by the U.S. Department of the Interior 
as one of the finest examples of Texas Creek Revival in the state. Of course, you can see the building is two stories. Around the top, you can see the original dental molding is still around the entire house. The front has a covered porch on each floor, and each porch is supported by four square wood columns. Henry owned a cedar break outside of town, and he hand-picked nearly all of the lumber in the home. And the window lights are six over nine. If you'll count the top half of the window has six panes, and the bottom of the window has nine panes. The window weights were shipped from New York to Galveston, and then by rail, and then freight wagon to Bastrop. Henry and Marianne didn't have any children, but they raised three children of Marianne's sister in this home. And the children were Molly, Ruth, and Billy, or William. And those three kids had the, had the best of everything. And Molly was pampered, and by the time she was 16 years old, her uncle Henry had bought her three pianos. And the last one was the first upright in Bastrop. She wrote her memoirs, Molly, in the late 1920s, and they have become an excellent source for local historians. One of the stories she wrote is about the night her brother, William, left for Houston, where men who had enlisted in the Southern Army were gathering uh, before their departure to the battleground states. And this was 1861, just as the war began. And I have written her words in my book as she wrote them. And I hope you'll let me read them to you because they are just wonderful. Sure. So here's what she wrote. This is the picture of the last evening by the east window of the long wide hall. My aunt sat in her Boston rocker. Uncle, now on the gallery with his pipe, now seated inside his great rocker, we girls, Ruth and myself, trying to be cheerful, but failing utterly. On the lounge, Brother William in travel clothes with his valise packed to bursting near the front door, the lamp on the table unsteady, wavering. Conversation started forgotten, Aunt's hands busy with some kind of needlework, then lying idly in her lap, and the clock ticking louder and louder as the short hand moved from 11 to 12. Impulsively, I picked up the scissors from my aunt's basket and going to the lounge where my brother lay, clipped off a lock of his hair. Quickly, he turned and sadly smiled. Now's heard the stage horn as the lumbering coach and four climbs the bank of the river and enters town. Hearts beat fast, a choking sensation is in the throat. Words and kisses of goodbye. The stagecoach is at the gate. It's a last look into eyes, and the soldier brother is gone. Oh, so dramatic. <laughs> okay, but you know that the tradition of clipping a lock of hair uh, from a loved one had two meanings. It could be carried in a trunk or in a pocket or sometimes tied with a ribbon or framed like a photograph as a reminder of a loved one. Or if the person died, the lock of hair would be placed inside a specially designed piece of jewelry. You've heard the term a mourning locket. That mourning means 
grieving, not mourning, wake up mourning. It's so that you could put that lock of hair in a mourning lock and wear it like a necklace. Well, when Billy arrived in Houston, he joined with Terry's Texas Rangers. And during the four years with him, he received one slight wound, but he had three horses killed out from under him. In the last year of the war, he drew a furlough, which he gave to a married friend. They were near Rome, Georgia, and the rangers were protecting the retreat of the Southern Army, and Billy was shot, and he handed his pistols to one of his boys, and he said, I'm shot, boys, and then he rode off into the woods and died. Molly inherited the home and taught music for income, and then she moved to Houston in 1897, and she became the founding president of the Young Women's Christian Association, the YWCA, and that was the first one in Texas. So that's Molly. You know, Robbie, the Molly McDowell story, Mary McDowell is just just remarkable because she didn't know that anything she had, including a lot of other documents, she didn't know they were valuable until she talked to you know, one of her former students, Judge Batts, who convinced her to, to write these uh, her reminiscences, and it's a classic piece of Texas history used over and over again. So here we are, we're gonna take a right on Elm Street and stop just after you get through the intersection, and Robbie will talk about the house on the left. This address is 1502 Elm, and it's the Margaret Chambers house. And it was built, the best we can tell, before 1857. We don't have an exact date, but we can say before 1857. It's named for Margaret Chambers. And this is the first residential structure in Bastrop to get a marker from the Texas Historical Commission. They got that marker in 1962. And it's a Texas Greek revival home has three wood-burning fireplaces and heavy square columns and handmade peg doors. Margaret Chambers was first married to an early colonist named Josiah Wilbarker, and they settled on the north side of the Colorado River in what's called Wilbarker Bend. In 1830, Margaret was in Matagorda waiting for Josiah. He was building a cabin for them, and Josiah finished his cabin, sent an Indian fighter to guide her from Matagorda here to the, her new home or out to Wilbarger Bend. And she made that journey on horseback with a baby on her lap and a feather bed tied on the back of the saddle and a carpet bag on the saddle horn. And the guide didn't speak very often and uh, often rode well ahead of her and she would be instructed to dismount, hide in the thickets, and keep the baby silent. They finally made it to the cabin and there was no one there. And Josiah and his buddies were out scouting and surveying. They all came in very late and were hungry. And this pioneer woman, she got a big old pot hooked over hot coals, and she prepared venison and bear meat. Her husband, Josiah, was scalped 
by the Indians in 1833, but he lived another 11 years after that. And she had a wedding dress in that carpet bag that she brought, and she had enough fabric in that dress to rip up enough bandages that she turned into bandanas or little turbans to change the dressings on his wound for 11 years. And he finally died. He hit his head on the top of the cellar door and never recovered from that. She then married Colonel Thomas Chambers in 1846, and he had come to Texas from Kentucky and uh, wanted to join Sam Houston at San Jacinto, but they were too late when they came. They missed the battle. Uh, but Chambers was a lawyer and legal advisor to the Wilbargers. Well, after he died, then she moved here into town and moved into this house. And she donated $2,000 to the construction of the Methodist Church in that academy building that was torn down. And that oldest child, that baby that she had on her lap when she was coming here with the Indian guide, that baby grew. And in 1850, that man then was killed uh, on the plains in West Texas by Indians. So that's Margaret Chambers. Great story, great house. Okay, Lucian, we keep going on this street and stop before you get to Main Street. And Robbie will talk about the house on the right at 1810 Main Street. You wouldn't think it, but this is the oldest house in Bastrop. It's the, called the Old Jenkins House. And it began as a log cabin around 1830 to 1833. And it was just a single room with a dirt floor. It was owned by Edward and Sarah Jenkins, but they lived on the west side of the Colorado River. We don't know why they had this house in town, but there were houses called Sunday houses. Maybe they came to escape Indians. We don't know why they had this house in town, but in 1833, Edward was working in the fields when he was scalped by Indians and died. And Sarah was pregnant at that time, and so she moved into Bastrop with her three children into this small log cabin. Sarah and her family converted the cabin into a typical pioneer double log cabin with a log floor. And the kitchen was built separate from the house and later connected to the main structure. And then later still, the logs were covered with siding and the small front porch was added. And uh, this charming Texas cottage at one story is the oldest home in Bastrop. Now in 1835 she married James Northcross and he died with Travis and Crockett in the Alamo. A month later then her son John Holland Jenkins pleaded to join General Sam Houston's army as the army was marching to face General Santa Ana at San Jacinto and Sarah reluctantly gave him permission to go. But before the battle began, John was persuaded to come back home and help his mother who was getting ready to run from Bastrop. It was called the runaway scrape because they knew that Mexican forces were headed for Bastrop. But John was sent back here to help his mother get ready to run from Bastrop. But even though he didn't participate in the Battle of San Jacinto, John, Jenkins is credited with being the youngest soldier in the fight for Texas independence. He was 13 years old. 
seven generations of Jenkins kids <laughs> lived in this home. And for 60 years, the kitchen was ruled by a Tonkawa Indian woman named Aunt Puss. She was captured at an early age and lived with the family as the cook and maid. And many people believe that Tonkawas were cannibals. And Aunt Puss took advantage of that fearful belief. And when the children who were reared under her care misbehave, she would shake her finger at them and she would threaten to turn them into Jenkins soup. <laughs> so anyway, that's this sweet little house. You know, one of my favorite discoveries at the courthouse, I was doing some research, I don't know why, but I came across an item that, describing the property and it, and it said, beginning at a spot where John Jenkins buried some broken glass. Instead of instead of a instead of a pin in the ground or an X on a tree, uh, so they were very uh, rude and crude about the way they did they did those. My so we're goodness. turning uh, we're turning right here onto Cedar Street again, and we're going to go to the very next street, which is a left only, and that puts us on Church Street. These houses are all in my book, but there are, in the book, there are over 90 houses, and we're just doing, I don't know, what are we doing, five or six or seven well, of these maybe, houses? Well, maybe, so, it, maybe it does, but that's uh, what I was gonna ask you, because it's so many more than we're yes, able to see. Yes, uh-huh, yeah. these are the highlights. So we're going so. up, Lucian, to the second house on the left, and it's a very, very grand house. This house is 1501 Church Street, and it's called the Rufus Green House. Yes, you can see the address just over the front door. Believe it or not, this house began as a one-story cottage. When it was built before 1888, this is another one we can't quite nail down the construction date, it had high ceilings and wide cedar floors when it was purchased by Rufus Green and his wife Sue in 1888. They had, when they moved into this house, uh, a daughter, uh, who was 14 years old. Minnie was her name. Rufus was a familiar figure in Bastrop for over 40 years. and He was a partner in a local brick company and operated a drugstore and was a banker and builder. As a builder, he upgraded the cottage, this one-story cottage, and he added a bathroom and a kitchen. But he also built what is now termed the historic First National Bank building on Main Street in downtown Bastrop. He was one of the bank's early directors and stockholders and held many bank shares. Rufus was a businessman, but he also liked to have a good time. And he owned a huge wagon drawn by four white horses. And he drove around members of the Bastrop City Band who played for community events and parades. And his wagon had high curved ornate sides and there were benches for about 10 band members. And old photographs show uh, the words Bastrop City Band painted on the sides with Rufus perched in front behind the reins. The band members in matching uniforms are in the middle and a big bass drum is hanging over the very back uh, edge of the wagon. <laughs> when Rufus died in 1893, Sue, 
his wife, and his unmarried daughter, Minnie, inherited his many bank shares. And a year and a half after Rufus died, Minnie married William Bland Ransom. So here we have William, Minnie, and her mother, Sue, all living in the home now together. And four years before they married, <laughs> Ransom had arrived in Bastrop with $10 and one change of clothes. You have written about this, Kenneth. That's where I found this, I believe. He had attended business school in Illinois and got a job as a clerk for one of the local law firms. And it seems to me, though, that Minnie Green was a pretty good catch for a man who had arrived in Bastrop almost penniless only a year and a half earlier. <laughs> Sue eventually sold her share of the home to Minnie and William. Then both Sue and Minnie's bank shares were transferred to William and he became a wealthy man. He was appointed to the bank's board of directors in 1903, but to his credit, he was evidently well-liked in the community and a good businessman, and he became president of the First National Bank, and he held that position for 20 years. When automobiles were beginning to appear in Bastrop about 1910, William wanted one, and I think he probably saw H.P. Luckett with his car, and William wanted one, and many told him, you cannot have a car until you build me a house. Well, William's solution was to remodel this home as you see it today. And he added the upper story and this dramatic two-story classical columns. And he left the lower floor basically as it had been. But we don't know if William got his car or not. <laughs> That's this house. Very nice. So we're going uh, to continue on Church Street until the next stop sign. I will comment that a lot of people say that Church Street and the northern part of Pecan Street are the premier streets in Bastrop in terms of houses. Robbie, you think that's true? Uh, yes, but then, it, then of course Pecan Street, there are other streets that have amazing homes too, but uh, yes, these are My mother used beautiful. to say the, the Pecan Street was the silk stocking district and she uh -huh. lived in the poor section. <laughs> so we're at the stop sign back here on Buttonwood. And we're going to look at the house on the left immediately. And Lucian, you should recognize this house. Yeah, that's where I'm coming back to after this. Well, here we are, the Hall Sayers Perkins house. And it is from 1852. And we're at 1307 Church Street. The historical marker, you recall, for this house described it as an American primitive colonial home. And it was built by Constant K. Hall, that's a man named Constant, and his wife Margaret in 1852. And it was another, here we go again, it was another one-story, two-room cottage with a dog trot hall and two fireplaces. And Constant was a part owner of the Risher Sawyer Hall stage line, and they controlled 16 passenger and mail lines in the state. They sold the home to David Sayers, and David Sayers was the father of the future governor of Texas, Joseph Draper Sayers, and David Sayers was a doctor, 
and evidently very kind. Uh, his descendants have spoken of his, they call it his benevolence, and uh, the inscription on his headstone in Fairview says, the afflicted poor never appealed to him in vain. The descendants of Sayers sold the house to Dr. Nathan Fowler in 1905. And there is a wonderful story about Dr. Fowler that appeared in the 1921 issue of the Bastrop Advertiser. And this is an, another story I, I, I would like to read. And this is from the Advertiser, if I can. It says, Dr. N.G. Fowler, Bastrop's Rhode Island Red King, has recently had shipped to him a rooster that seems to take the prize from all the roosters in town. <laughs> when the fowl was shipped into town and brought upon Main Street last week, he had quite a number of gentlemen admirers. The rooster was in a large box, and when he stood up to crow, his head was well above the box and the rest of the crowd. Dr. Fowler took the bird home and put it in one of his ordinary chicken yards. And it was not very long until the doctor found that he had to take down one of the cross fences in order that the new fowl might have room to turn around. In other words, all of the chicken apartments in the doctor's yard have had to be enlarged. Even the doctor's visions have been enlarged to the extent that he now fancies himself as being the champion chicken raiser of the county. <laughs> so I love the story. Okay. Only the advertiser. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. we're going to go up here 100 feet or so and to a magnificent house on the right. Two-story, you will tell it's the right place to stop. And 1208 and Lucian will stop in front of it. This house is 1911. We're at 1208 Church the home of H.B. Combs, and it was built in 1911. It's a gorgeous home. His name was Henry Burris Combs, and he was a prominent doctor, and he and his wife, Maud, lived here. But they had eclectic taste, and this two-story home has been described as a combination of an eclectic architectural mix, and it's a combination of neoclassical elements so you can see the neoclassical part with these tall columns and the elaborate doorway and and then it's mixed with with arts and crafts elements inside this mixture of architectural elements might be due to the fact that for the very first time you could pick and choose different building components from catalogs and so the local builders and contractors could order plans and ready-built architectural elements that were picked out from the catalog by the homeowner. Uh, Dr. Combs and Maud didn't have any children but they took under their wing a 13-year-old boy named Mike Juarez who worked on Combs's farm. It was behind the house here and Mike married Connie Morales in 1913. And so then the Combses hired her to cook and clean and help Mike maintain the property. Mike and Connie had 12 children, 
and each one Dr. Combs delivered, and he took the honor of naming after himself and his family. So you ended up with children named Gladys Juarez, Dorothy Juarez, Roy Juarez, and of course there were kids named Henry and Maud Juarez. But in the late 1920s, there was one last child, the 12th child, and evidently they ran out of names because they named that child after the then governor of Texas, who was Dan Moody. So that last child was called Dan Moody Juarez. <laughs> I think uh, we don't need to move much. We're right across the street almost is our final house, Robbie. Yes, yes. Okay, this house is from 1851. We're at 1207 Church. Yes, you can see it on the front of the house, 1207 Church, and it's called the Albert Earhart House. This is another house that began as a one-story house. It was built by a man named James Nichols, who was a blacksmith, and during the Civil War, he joined with Bastrop's local gunsmith, N.B. Tanner, who had contracted with the Texas Military Board to produce 500 rifles for the Confederate Army. Well, Nichols finally dissolved the partnership after making only 294 rifles because he said he wasn't being paid enough, so he quit the partnership. The house was sold to Albert Earhart. So Albert, you know, you remember Caton Earhart established a drugstore. That was the first house we did. Caton Earhart established a drugstore on Main Street, and his son was Albert, and Albert was in this house, bought this house. And so Albert inherited the drugstore and then bought this house. Both events happened in 1884. He enlarged it and added the second story about 1902. And when that story was added, it became what you see now is this modified Queen Anne style house. The bottom corners of the second floor project over the first floor and they have a, a decorative fan shingle pattern. Uh, they're wonderful. And then you see half size support columns that support the arch span across the front porch. Okay. There was the drugstore on Main Street with Caton Earhart. Then his son here, Albert, had the drugstore. And now Albert's son, Harry, had the drugstore. And then Harry inherited this house. So Harry inherited the house and the drugstore in 1931. And there are a few old-timers around who still remember Harry Earhart. Harry smoked a pipe and he held it upside down clenched between his teeth and there are pictures of him on main street with that pipe in his in his mouth and he paid local kids 25 cents for each rattlesnake they brought him and he used the venom to make drugs pharmaceuticals and i think they use snake venom still today but that's what he wanted his snakes for and sometimes I guess if a snake got old, I don't know why, but he would kill a snake. He had him in the back of his store, and he would kill one, and he had a burner back there where he would fry snake. And then when his friends or customers came in the drugstore, he would serve them fried snake that he had cooked up in the back of the store. So Harry lived here in Maud. This was their home. But a lot of people remember 
that story about him frying up that snake <laughs> or snake. Well, right. it's a great house and a great family. Well, Robbie, uh, we can't thank you enough for this uh, great entertainment and historical perspective that you provided for us. So this is a place called Bastrop. Lucian Perkins and Ken Kesslis wishing you well, and we'll see you at the next episode.